Hey everyone, welcome back to On Point. This episode, I sit down with Corbin from the Knock Deep podcast, as well as the shop Corbin's Archery out of Seminole, Texas, I believe. And uh, he's got a good archery shop out of there. Sounds like he's doing some good work, taking his time with the customers and making sure that people leave well-equipped and well-tuned before they uh, leave the doors. So uh, if you have a chance, be sure to visit Corbin's shop there in Texas. If you live there closely or want to go get some good tuning, or be taken care of for your archery needs. And then also for his podcast, it's a newer podcast. I think they're about 10 episodes in, uh, but he's got some good information on there. Got some really big guests lined up and uh, he's going to be doing some good things, which is the Knock Deep podcast. I will have links for both those things in the description box below. But uh, Corbin is is the guest on this episode. This is actually a swap cast, so he's going to up, uh, upload this episode onto his as well. But I appreciate him coming onto the show. We talk about hunting in Texas versus Oregon, tips, kind of tactics for hunting each other's species in each other's states, arrow setups. And uh, it was just a really fun conversation. So I can definitely see him finding his way back onto the show in the future. And I appreciate for him, uh, him for having me on his. So outside of that, just a couple quick reminders. If you want to help the show, go sign up, www.onpointpodcast.com. Give me your email on there. Sign up for the newsletter. That definitely helps. Five-star reviews on iTunes helps. Uh, five stars is the most if you feel that we earned it. We'd love to have that review. And also, if you want to monetarily uh, support the show, if you feel that we're doing enough work and you want to see us grow, you can always go on to www.patreon.com forward slash onpointpodcast. And really, any amount helps. We have folks that are giving $5 to $10 plus. You know, it, any amount really does help. We just bought some new mics, recording equipment, and uh, just really helps helps the podcast grow and, and create a better listening experience for the ones that are listening. So that was www.patreon.com forward slash podcast. And outside of that, one last, last reminder is the YouTube channel. Uh, we have some really cool content this time. This time of year, with all the bow reviews coming out, is really when the YouTube channel grows. When we get the most views, people really love the bow reviews that we do, especially the comparison videos. So where you have maybe Hoyt's flagship versus Matthew's flagship, and we shoot them both against each other and kind of give the performance differences and kind of my opinions on them. Uh, very unbiased and hopefully a good review for the folks that listen or watch them. Uh, be sure to type in the search bar, Garrett Weaver, two R's, two T's. That's, that's you know super easy. I'll pull right up, click subscribe with the bell icon so you get notified when I upload. And uh, let me know what you think. I love doing those bow reviews. They're fun. And uh, always look forward to trying to pump those out as soon as those bows come out so you guys can get the information and go shoot all the bows with a little bit more knowledge behind it. So outside of that, appreciate everybody listening, and I'll see you at the end of the episode. Bye. So this is going to be basically a swap cast, so you and I are both going to upload this thing. And I I want to pick your brain about Texas. I know you've got some questions about hunting out west and stuff and and um, kind of get to know you because you opened up a shop recently, uh, Corbin's Archery, right? Yeah, we've we've had this shop for about twelve years. Oh, you have? Oh, I thought you just opened it. No, we've we've ran the bow shop for a long time. Um, our podcast is pretty new, but I've had the the bow shop for a long time. Oh, okay. So, uh, what do you guys deal with, uh, Matthews Bowtech? What what's your brands? Matthews Bowtech, Hoy Elite, um, Diamond. Any it, almost every single bow company. Um, other than like, I think mean, there's two companies we don't carry in the shop. Really? So as but, a bow uh, shop owner, is there certain bows or manufacturers that you find 
are like you sell them and then you'll never see them again or do you have problem children out of any of those without with i know it's a shitty question for a bookshop owner but is there a, is there a particular brand that you like to sell over others we'll put it that way <laughs> um I, i'm not gonna say a particular brand i like to sell i think that we have companies in the industry that take care of us more than other companies mm -hmm. i'm lucky and the three dominant brands right now, my reps are amazing. And if I have warranty issues, I can call Ryan at Matthews. I can call Blake at Elite. I can call my Bowtech rep or anybody. And I have a response and we'll get you taken care of. Tell your customer we're sending it out. And so I don't have one that I like to sell over another um, as long as the company takes care of my customer. Okay. If yeah. That's that's because if it was me and I have a warranty issue on my boat, I want it ASAP. I don't want to wait four weeks for limbs or cams. That makes sense. And and I've heard a lot of guys that um, sometimes the the manufacturers will put it on the bow shop owner to fix the issue and make them pay for it out of pocket. And that to me just right. isn't fair because if you know I used to work in the car industry doing service and stuff, and if your say your Dodge breaks down and it's under warranty. The shop doesn't pay for it. They get reimbursed or, right. you know, Dodge pay, ends up paying not a lot, but they end up paying for it, you know. And so I, I've seen with a few shops um, and a few different manufacturers, it's just they don't they don't want to put the money out when something goes wrong. You know, have you ran into that at all? I personally have not. Oh, um, good. <laughs> we, we sell a lot of archery equipment, though. And so I think we have an advantage over a smaller shop. Mm -hmm. um, in a small town we do a lot of business and if i don't have things warrantied and my customers aren't taken care of i don't have to do business really um, i think that archery industry is changing we're not in a, at a i'm not coming from a big box store perspective i'm coming from one of if you want me to carry your product you're going to take care of me or i don't need you um it's definitely got to be a give and take um the main thing there is when a customer has an issue like hey they're going to warranty the parts but you're responsible for paying for our labor to fix the bow and get it tuned back up. Right. That our customers don't seem to mind that. Like they understand that concept. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I believe in the car industry, it may be different where that the manufacturer actually reimburses for the time. Or they, they do. They do. Yeah. And, yeah. and at where I'm from, um, a lot of guys hate that. Like they hate that. The fact that they're getting charged anything when anything yes. goes wrong, you know, so if like, uh, you know, even if they derail a, um, you know, a cam or something like that, which lucky for me, um, Bowtech is only like an hour and 15 minutes yes. north and my buddies dry fired a Bowtech once and derailed the same Bowtech within like a month. Actually his roommate derailed it and they fixed it for free both times. You know, it's like yes. they, they really do take care of their customers locally, especially, um, cause yeah. that's where the headquarters is, is just right up the road from me. But yeah, I just got a shipping notification for their new bows headed our way. So really, yeah, pretty exciting. Target or the hunting line too? The new hunting line. Okay. Is there? A, have they given you any insider information yet or anything? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just know that we get them a few days before they launch, and okay. we get better of do not say a word, do not post pictures, or you lose your dealership, which I respect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I was uh talking to some buddies i got some i don't know if you call it insider information but i saw um saw some 
literature from Matthews about what they plan on doing this year. And, and um, I'm really hoping they change their risers, but it sounds like they're going to use some of the same technology from last year and stuff. So I, I think that Matthews is going to be pretty exciting this year. I don't, I don't know how they keep doing it, but I, I'm super excited and I know exactly what's coming out. Uh, mm. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about all the new Bozo period. Yeah, I, I, I'm tired. Of, I, I, from what I saw, there's no carbon bows from Matthews coming out again. Like they're not going to no. do that. So carbon I'm like, bow. okay, that sucks. And I'm really hoping they, um, for me on the, on the, uh, this might contrast different from you guys. I'm wanting a lighter bow. I hope they get back down towards four, 4.2 pounds or get down to even where the chill R was, you know, like I want something lighter that I can lug around these 4.83 pound bows or 4.8 something pound bows are just they're anchors man like my buddies had some traverses this year and i was just like fully rigged up i'm like f that i carried the hail on the first year that came mm-hmm. out and my buddy had the chill r and it was notice noticeably way more fun to pack his bow around than it was to pack the halon around like after a while after six miles like you're carrying your bow the strings start your fingers start getting sensitive yeah. to the string it, it Call me a pussy. I, I just, I like having a lighter bow packing it around and I'm willing to lose that little bit of stability on the shot for comfort, <laughs> you know, but we'll see. I mean, uh, I, I'm excited to see what Matthews comes out with, um, continuing the switch weight technology, which I think is pretty cool, but, um, I want to see what their ATAs do this year. And I want, I want to see a riser change and I've been bashed. Um, I haven't been bashed, but I pissed a lot of guys off with my bow reviews on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen any of them with the Matthews. I have, yeah. <laughs> uh, some guys, you know, I called them uh, the mini, the mini Halon. Uh, the first year uh-huh. they came out with the mini Halon. Not Matthews guys didn't like that, but it's basically a mini Halon. I mean, it's a, pretty much the same riser, same cams, shorter bow. They add a 360 dampener in the bottom of the riser, and then they add the switch weights. And I don't know, man. I, I just wish they'd kind of get away from that. And then, change it up, but it works. It, it does works. work. You can run noise and vibration tests on something, and I'm, I'm not biased at all. I literally I hunted with an RX3 all mule deer season. Uh, this year, I am in love with a Traverse, the axle to axle, super forgiving. Um, I did not take one elk hunting. Uh, I thought it was a little bit long for me. It would drive me nuts, mm. but their technology works. Just like Hoyt's carbon technology is phenomenal. Um, but the technology, when you can make a bow that's 75% less noise and vibration than other companies, I don't know where you, where we go from there. And I told my right. rep after that, after the, um, I'm going blank right now after not the Halon, but the, uh, Triax, mm-hmm. I call him. I said, I don't want many bows. Like, I don't know if you can beat the noise and vibration, which don't forget we're in Texas. And so when you get stuck in a ground blind, mm-hmm. that maneuverability is just like being in a tree stand. It, it's key to have that short axle right. axle. And we sold out of every single bow we were sent um, and could not keep up with those triaxes solely because of the maneuverability. And then you would shoot them when they were quiet. Um, right. And then, you know, Hoyt came out the next year and, and kept up with that, the, the noise. Yeah. I mean, I, I still felt like they were behind. Like Matthews, I feel like has just been kicking Hoyt's right in the balls. I mean, I feel like last three, well, since the Halon, I felt like Hoyt has been behind Matthews for shootability, sound, speeds. They've just been behind. I mean, really, honestly, the grips, they got the grip. I love the I love the Hoyt grips. I do. Grip, yeah. uh, but the RX-1 Turbo, I didn't shoot that thing near as good as my last three bows. That's more as me as a shooter. 
Um, the RX3, uh, there wasn't, there was a little bit of an improvement for me, uh, but there wasn't enough. And the cost versus value, um, mm-hmm. I felt like that was the biggest gap from $1,600 to what you're getting. I like the Nitrix actually more than the uh, Carbon Bows this year. Like, I, it was, it had everything. It was a good bow. And it was light. And yeah. it was light too. It's super heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's great bow. And I understand the weight thing too. Like, I get it. Uh, I, but again, I'm not, I go elk hunting once a year and my mule deer hunts, I walk two to three miles glassing. I'm not up and down a mountain all day long. It's a different type of hunting. Right. Yeah. Well, do you guys carry PSE at all? I am. I, PSE is the first company I carried. Really? And yes. Yes. Uh, I love my reps. I love the company. They make light bows. I love the cams. Um, the design of their risers, their grips, that's what drives me nuts. <laughs> me too. The grip and, is what's prevented me from liking any of the carbon, like the stealths and stuff like that. It's just like oh. grabbing a two by four. <laughs> It's, it's, it was terrible. It should, in my opinion, that bow shouldn't have been released. It should have never been released with a grip like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you do enough R&D on your bows that I'm going to be able to tell you. I can, I can walk into a bow shop and say, I need you to bring five guys in that can keep their dang mouth shut. Spray paint a bow mm-hmm. and be like, hold these risers. Do any of these feel good to you? To me, that's where we should be with a bow company now is I need uh, people outside the company, just normal guys that can actually hold the bow and say, man, that grip is terrible. Mm-hmm. I put that stealth in probably 80 guys' hands, and they would go over to the Hoyt or the Matthews or the Elite and be like, oh, put that bow back. Because yep. we set them on a rack when you're a new shooter. We set them on a rack, and it's rapid fire. Which bow feels best to you? That's that's the only way we set up bows. And when they immediately, every single time we're setting up that PSC, it sets to the side only because of the grip. Only. Hmm. That was an issue for me. So I have not stalked many other bows since really okay so this year they changed the grips um, yes. I, I got my hands on the uh on the stealth which is their carbon bow this year mm-hmm. and it much better much better it's actually probably one of my favorite grips it's over it's over it's right below the hate the hoyt grips probably or maybe even on par with the hoyt grip. I, I liked it a lot it's a lot sleeker they actually had a grip on there like they put a grip on there um I, i'm a big fan of it and i feel like the the carbon offering now since they fixed that that issue with the grip, um, I feel like Hoyt's going to probably take a hit on their carbon line this year from from PSC Steel and customers because the the cams are amazing. Yes, the, they are. they're hitting the lighter end of the bows for me because Hoyt's bows, even though they're carbon, are still pretty heavy for being mm-hmm. a carbon bow. Um, I just feel like the the cost per value that I keep going back to it's it's still sixteen hundred dollars or fifteen hundred bucks for a PSE carbon bow, but I feel like there's a lot more to offer even though their speeds are a little slower this year. A lot of guys were kind of twerked about that. Um, but they are coming in over IBO quite a bit, um, quite common. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. It's, it's you know, because they went with more parallel limbs this year and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I That Mach 1, I think, is going to be a home run for PSE. But I don't know. the uh, Over the NXT lines, I like my Evoke just as much. It's a little bit more stiff. That's it. I like the PSE bows. I really do. I, it's just, there's been a lot of changes up there. We've had a lot of rep changes and I love their cam system. Um, I have not had my hands on the new bow, so I need to shoot them and see. Um, but it's hard being in the shop where you want <laughs> customers, 
customers or you want your friends or people looking at your reviews to say, okay, it's a non-biased opinion. Mm-hmm. And so with that, if you don't have those bows in stock, it's hard for your customers to get that opinion. Right. But you can, also can't sit on a bow in a market that they don't move because of the grip. And so right. we'll see, we'll probably have a couple sent in now and see what they feel like. And yeah, yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised the rep hasn't been by to, to free to shoot. Corey Miller is our rep and he's been all over Oregon anyways, just putting bows in hands and stuff. And, and, uh, luckily he, he's, he, he called or messaged me and said, Hey, I'll be in your town Friday. Why don't we do some videos and, and do a review and podcast? And I was like, hell yeah, dude. Like I am always down to shoot new bows. <laughs> And, and I don't care what brand it is. I, w- I want to shoot them all, you know? Right. Um, but is there, um, is there, cause I want to get into something here. Cause I hear a lot from guys I talk to, um, a lot of guys over East will, will talk and, and message in and, and, you know, ask about how to find a good bow shop and stuff like that. And, and I've been guilty of, of saying, you know, a lot of guys don't like this, but be your own best advocate. Like, learn to work on your own stuff. Cause around here, um, one of my really good friends to this day was a bow shop tech. And he's like, no one's going to treat your bow like you do. I'm like, well, if I'm paying you, you should. Right. Like, and I think that was maybe just him, you know, cause no yeah. one's going to treat your bow as good as you. And so that's the day I started to learn working on my own stuff. I'm like, well, if I'm paying and no one's going to treat it as good as I will, then that's it. So that's kind of what started me on this tear of, of learning archery and learning all these things and stuff. But, um, with your shop, I've kind of followed you on, on the Instagram and stuff like that. It doesn't sound like you're just tuning for a mechanical and shoving people out there that I hear a lot of guys do east, east of the Mississippi kind of thing. Um, yeah. so walk, walk me through, um, what you do for somebody coming into the store. Cause I'd like to hear a shop that, that does it good. Not one that I've, that I've been bagging on, on the podcast. I need to clarify real quick. So our archery shop, we are full-time. Um, I am also a school psychologist and a board certified behavior analyst and oh, I'm wow. working on PhD. And the purpose of our shop is solely for fun. Um, we, we started it back in the day out of a garage and just grew and grew and grew. And so I have an advantage in our shop that it's not, it's really not to just, Oh, I'm going to, you're not going to make a million dollars selling bows. It's just not going to happen. And even as a top 100, like Matthews dealer and Hoyt dealer and all that, you're just not going to do it. And so when we come in, I actually go to the shop. Kate goes to the shop and John goes to the shop and we go in for fun. And so when we go in, we have a whole process of every single bow is broken down to a bear shaft too. Um, because average ticket sell when you're in these high end bows, maybe $2,200 if you, for a full setup. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, um, when we do that, a lot of our customers are in the oil field. We're in the oil patch. We're um, Permian Basin. If anybody l- listens to this and researches this, we're just in the middle of the oil. And our guys are working 80, 90 hour weeks, 89 hour weeks. Um, and they come in and they need it set up so they can go on a hunt. So our process is we, um, we take the bow, we do all the fitting first, and then we ask the bow to be left with us as we pick our, when we design an arrow that, goes with it, whether it be our three flights, four flights, wraps, we get spines perfect. Um, then we bear shaft tune to the exact broadhead they're using, um, which I have so many guys I don't realize. I posted one time about a guy that came in and said, do you mean these, these, these blades won't fly the same as my fill point? <laughs> a majority of the time they won't. And so we run them on the Hooter shooter, which is, um, I, I think Spot Hog's out of Oregon. I may be yep. wrong. Yep. They're yeah. just two hours away from me about. 
pick of a company, they make a thing called a hooter shooter. We run every bow through that, and then we know our bow's perfect, and we take it and go with the customer then, and we start adjusting grips. And okay. so our process is, um, Kate and I have a, a little rule, and if, we, if it doesn't take three hours, the person's either awesome or we haven't done enough time making sure the bow's perfect. And so that's just kind of our process of actually going bear shaft tuning, then, then we'll go to our broadhead, and we want our bear shaft, our broadhead, and our uh, veined arrow to be hitting the exact same. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are times that we have to take bows apart, switch limbs around, call the factory, and be like, "Hey, what's going on with this bow?" Mm -hmm. um, but that's just our process. So it's fun for us to make it more of a science rather than a, "Oh, buy those three forties over there; they'll fit your bow because you're sixty pounds and you're twenty eight inches." Well, not necessarily. We don't know exactly what you're running. Mm -hmm. well, how that bow is going to perform with that arrow. That's cool because a lot of shops that, and, and I see it too, is is get them in and get them out. You know, let's let's find the bow. Let's have them shoot some groups. Yeah, they're going to shoot probably pretty good at 20 yards. Most bows do. And yeah. then we're going to shoot them through paper. As soon as we get a first bullet hole, we're going to sell them some arrows. We're going to sell them release, outfit <laughs> the bow, and then we're going to get them out the door. And yep. Try and do that within an hour, you know, like get that done. It probably, a lot of guys are probably out of there in 45 minutes. So, but that's not, like you said, always the best thing because what if I switch my point weights and I, I listen to a Ashby guy and I want to have, you know, plus 18% or plus 22% FOC mm -hmm. or whatever. And there goes my spine, you know? So, um, how big of a factor, um, do you, do you guys find out what they're going to hunt and stuff and then set up accordingly for their arrows? Like you sell a guy a bow and he's going to go whitetail hunting and then the next guy's going to go kill a Cape Buffalo in Africa. Is that, is that all part of the process finding out what they're going to be doing with it? That is huge for us. And being in Texas again, we have guys and we're <laughs> right on the, we're right on the New Mexico border. We're 20 minutes from New Mexico. Oh. And so we have our whitetail hunters, our elk hunters, and then we have our oil field guys that are flying to Africa three times a year to go shoot Cape Buffalo, whatever they're shooting. And so it's, it's actually a challenge to say, we just want speed out of your bow right now. If we're going for a white tail, we need 24 foot pounds of kinetic energy. Like if in your shoot, we're shooting in, um, there's a place, um, south of us in Ozona mm -hmm. and those deer will drop to the ground and you want as much speed as possible, hmm. but then they're going elk hunting in two weeks. And so we have to kind of challenge them to meet us in the middle with our, our setups. Um, what would that setup look like for, for a guy over there? I'm just curious because I've never white-tail hunted, and I've heard they, they do jump strings really bad. They do. I need to send you some video. Um, Easton flat lines are, are a lot of our white-tail setups. Um, Easton axis, the five millimeters, anything that we're not running crazy amounts of weight in so we can get our speed up and just get there quicker because most of their shots are going to be from 30s a stretch. Really? Um, for a lot of these whitetail hunts where we're out of a ground blind, again, you know, you've heard about Texas. If they're hunting a feeder, that feeder's at 30 yards, 20 yards, and you're in a ground blind and you're shooting in. Mm -hmm. So you have that 17-yard shot. We just want to get there best. So usually a 100-grain head on it. Um, we, run, we run AAE veins majority of the time out here um, because of wind. Mm -hmm. I run on a hybrid 23 on most of those setups unless they want to hire on a, on a blazer top setup. Um, that's a white tail setup. I want a fast arrow. And as long as we're shoot, we're hitting over that 24 foot pounds, which is almost impossible not to get over. Right. I'm fine with most of our white tail guys. So even at like 20 yards, um, they're still jumping the string to the point where you could miss under or uh, over yeah. them. Yes. Really? 
So how fast yeah. would you suggest shooting and how heavy of an arrow? Um, I do not. I like 400 grains is um, for most 70 pound bows with that 28 inch and longer draw length. I like them there because we have way higher kinetic energy, at least probably in the 50 foot pounds kinetic energy. Your momentum stays the same, but um, we also have a lot of women that are shooting them. So saying that right speed's tough. Like my wife's bow is shooting 218 feet per second. Hmm. And I can't go any lighter with an arrow and still meet her kinetic energy. Hmm. And so hers, it's kind of saying, Hey, I want you aiming at the bottom of the heart. I don't, I don't necessarily care what speed she's hitting, but I want her to know he's going to drop your arrow. And I want you aiming at the very bottom of the heart. Don't ever take your pin off. And that way, when he sinks in, we're sinking right into the vitals. Interesting. Yeah. Like on your setup though, like I would run something completely different than if you were setting you up for elk. Mm -hmm. uh, unless, you know, when cost becomes a factor, we're going to meet in the middle and run, uh, you know, maybe a 450 grain arrow instead of a 500 like I'm shooting right now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so what, my last, uh, hunting arrow, last year's hunting arrow was four, 458 grains shooting mm -hmm. two, was it like 280 or something yeah, that's like that? great for me um and then right now i'm shooting 535 at 261 um but i you know like a blacktail over here i'm curious how big your whitetails are but a blacktail over here in the valley you know 130 140 pounds is about what you're going to get but if you start getting those cascade bucks you can get 160 180 right. um, pound deer 180 would be a giant fat deer but um uh, what and, and and i don't have to worry about shoulders i just well i've never aimed for the shoulder i've never hit a deer in the shoulder but if I didn't have that angle, I wanted to shove it right through there. It w I wouldn't even think about not going through. Um, and I'd probably go all the way through out the other side too. Like it's not even a question. Right. Um, run me through the whitetail uh, mindset on that. Um, I like guys like you're talking about, if you had to actually hit the shoulder and blast through. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, you know, Kristen works. Kristen is John's wife who works in the shop. I need to set that. Um, she shoots a, 40 pound bow and on whitetail last year, she was getting pass throughs. Really? You're shooting a, um, she's shooting a gold tip pierce 500. And I believe, I don't remember exact arrow weight. We were getting pass throughs for her. Um, the only one she didn't, she hit an offside shoulder and the, the arrow broke off, but the, the, the broadhead still came through the shoulder mm. or the opposite shoulder. Okay. That's a lot of poundage. And you're looking at about a hundred, about 130 pound deer in that Ozona area. Whereas in North Texas and South Texas, you can get into those 200 pound deer. Really? Yeah. So I would, I wouldn't have expected her arrow to carry as much energy through that bigger animal. Yeah. So I, for me in, in, um, I'd, I'd love to hear your, your ideas on kinetic energy versus momentum. Cause I've had these conversations before and it's like, I don't know where kinetic energy comes into play. Like I, I understand it's, it's a measurement that we use to find out if you have enough arrow to get the job done. Um, do you have any idea of why that is talked about in the archery industry? Cause if, for me, it would more, more so be like the momentum aspect of it. Um, and a lot of the, you know, any heavy arrow guy will tell you momentum, right? Um, right. But the light arrow guys are KE kind of, right. kind of a thing. They don't talk about momentum. Do you, um, and I was talking to Brian from day six and he's like back where he lives, guys call that knockdown energy kind of like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, that we don't, we don't, and no one says that around here in Oregon anyways. Like I, I've never heard that, that term for archery, but, um, that seems to be more of a thing the farther East you get. And that's kind of a contrast. I'd love to hear, um, 
your perspective on, on where that comes from and, and how that comes into play? So what I've gathered from kinetic energy and momentum is not being a scientist and not actually re researching it like maybe a physicist or even our engineers would. We have a guy named Eric. He's an oil field engineer. He is the type of guy, pretty sure he graduated college at 15. Holy crap. And became brilliant. So we got into this topic about, I was asking, dude, I am having some confusion about this kinetic energy, this momentum, and it's real. Because when you read about it, there's some places that will tell you the exact same thing. The momentum's once it hits and it continues to carry through. And what I've gathered is the momentum's what continues the energy through the animal at once impact hits. Mm -hmm. And what I've also read is that kinetic energy is basically the same thing. Like when you put them into a formula, you're getting almost the exact same numbers. And so kinetic energy is a slightly easier um, – I don't know, measurement to get. Hmm. Whereas momentum, you're talking about, uh, I forgot all the words that are associated with that, but there's a couple of more calculations to get it. Hmm. And from what I gathered from talking to him, they're basically the same thing. Momentum is where upon impact, it'll keep carrying. So basically what I look at is I know what energy my customers have to have to get through. Mm -hmm. And then I run, when we're setting up the arrows, I'll just run the KE calculation on it. And you can flip it to momentum and see both. Right, 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 right. That's yeah. that's what we do. And if I have, I had a customer in New Mexico. She was going elk hunting, and I think I believe it's fifty-four point something pounds for elk is what they recommend. Hmm. So we were running that, and I could not get her bow there. I said, "You have two choices. In the next month, we can get your energy up, but if I add arrow weight, we're going down." And the momentum was was doing the exact same thing as a kinetic energy. And so that's what I've gathered from it. I'm, again, I'm not a scientist or yeah. not the expert. Well, in, in my, um, f from setting up friends bows and, and, um, and stuff and, and light poundage and stuff, I, I typically suggest actually going heavy with, with like a 40 pound bow shooting elk. My buddy's wife killed a bull with a 360 grain arrow. And yeah. She wasn't shooting fast, but she was pulling like, I think 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, my buddy's wife, so I didn't have any say in it, but she killed it. You know, it, it, it hit the offside rib and then kind of like just stopped at the offside rib. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, like, man, I was like, man, if that, if I had any say, you'd be shooting at least a 400 grain arrow, you know, <laughs> at least, but, and that's just, you know, like back when I started bow hunting, I was shooting like 250 feet per second with like a PSC Carroll intruder, like from mm -hmm. the nineties. Um, and I was shooting like a 410 grain arrow and that was just because, I ran stock everything access, you know, basically. And, uh, I think back then I might even have been shooting four hundreds and I was still getting pass-throughs at 70, 72 yards on blacktail, you know, right. um, again, never hit anything in the shoulder. Um, luckily, um, uh, but I, I'm not gonna say luckily I, I, I practiced a shit ton. I'm, I didn't hit anything in the shoulder and, uh, was getting pass-throughs and my arrows was sticking in into the dirt, you know, even at 70 plus yards, and I just, I'm like, man, you know, like I love hearing from light arrow guys. I love hearing from the heavy arrow guys. I love hearing from the in-between and always hearing what thought processes people go through and stuff like that. And, and cause you know, if you have like the Tim Gillingham kind of mindset, have you heard his mindset on arrows? He's light. He's like super light. He's like, how far past the animal do you want to shoot? You know? <laughs> so you have that. And then you have the guys that are 700 plus grains and I get it, you know, like th that arrow ain't stopping, but your trajectory sucks. So, right. And your speed we, uh, sucks. 
Eric, the engineer, that's what we were talking about. And he runs a super light setup. Hmm. Because in the formula, you can pick up energy from the speed. Mm-hmm. And that, that conversation with him could be uh, any, the smartest guys out there would have a fun time with him actually getting to the numbers behind it of what is the most efficient arrow upon impact. Mm-hmm. But we also set a kid up that went to Africa this year with, we had to squeak 40 pounds out of his bow with a crazy short draw length. Really? I think he would, may have been 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And dad came in and was like, I need, I need arrows. I need to build these arrows. And so we, will, we built a 611 grain arrow or 612 grain arrow for him. Mm-hmm. Two wildebeest, complete pass-throughs with 40 pounds and a crazy short draw length. Absolutely. That's what I would have done. You know, like – Basically, the way I'm, I, I, I tell people that have those kind of setups, like, listen, you're not going to shoot past 40, and nope. probably, because you don't have the oomph, and you don't have anything. You're shooting basically a trad bow, and we're going to yep. treat you like you're a trad hunter. We're going to set you up like a trad hunter, and single, you know, single bevel or traditional two-blade, heavy-ass arrow, you're counting on momentum, and make a good shot, and keep it under yep. 30. <laughs> so, that's basically, yep. you know, that's how I treat those smaller setups, and, and people... I'm glad to hear that you um, you went that route because a lot of guys are like, shit, we need to you know we need to be around 300 feet per second. I'm like, man, you know that's yeah. Well, do what you want, you know. I'm do what you want, but you know that sounds like a great setup for that kid. And obviously, it was. You said he passed through a couple wildebeest and stuff, and he did. And when you run that 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 through those formulas mm-hmm. or those calculations, it told us like if we went any heavier and we lost the speed that we were losing, that we were losing energy. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I would have written everything down on his bow, but this was a really fast setup, like leaving in two days type thing. Mm. And that's where we got him, just like you said. But I told him his max distance was 17 yards. 17. 17. <laughs> because we couldn't get him to 20 because we couldn't get a site to work at that on that bow. Makes sense. I mean, moving his peep, everything. We were just – I mean, we were arcing at 17. But it was – it was they were FMJs with blazers, no wrap. Um, we ran a lot of knock cause we wanted to balance out that spine from the extra weight in the front, but we ran 70 grains of brass in the front and with an iron wheel collar and an iron wheel, uh, one fifty or one twenty five. I forgot wow. which we ran. Yeah. I mean, and they were, they were like little crossbow arrows, you know, they were super short. Do you know dark. how fast he was shooting? That's what I don't remember exactly. Uh, probably. So this was in the earlier this summer and it was, man, super, it slow. was really, yeah, super like just. What kind of site did you guys use for him? We switched him out to a single pin. I had a used single pin in a drawer from a, like a true glow or something. And we tossed it on and it was the only thing we could do for him Yep, because it was down. I mean, we were, our clearance was about like this. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say with, with uh, those, those, those same setups and super slow everything, but you know, um, I always suggest a, uh, a single pin or a, a multiple slider. Uh, multiple multi-pin slider and stuff like that because you know, you're not shooting very far you're not gonna be able to max the side out very far anyways and at that speed at that poundage every yard does count and right. being able to dial absolutely does come into play there and i i don't know it sounds like you and i are pretty similar when, when we give advice there and stuff like that but it gets tough to give advice be on like it run from a shop perspective mm-hmm because you, we may geek out on it. Um, I, like when I start looking at the arrows, it's just such so much fun for me. Whereas when I'm trying to tell a customer about it, they're like, I'll just set it up, just get it going. Well, there's a, I need to really need to know what you're doing with this boat. Right. <laughs> so I'm curious, you guys, um, 
you have mechanicals and you have you've had mechanicals there for a while, haven't you? In yes. Texas. Uh what is your guys's take on mechanicals versus fixed blades in Texas? For your shop I, anyways or, or for success rates? Personally, for it mine depends on the animals. I, I would love my customers shooting higher poundage bows to be using a big mechanical on whitetail. Hmm. I have, I hear, and we both hear those stories about individuals that, Oh, it didn't open. It didn't open. Well, I've shot 70 deer with a, with a two blade mechanical and I've found them within 30, 40 yards and the blood trail was insane. Really? Again, I practiced, I know exactly where I'm shooting. And then I have a two and a half inch margin of error mm -hmm. to where that blade's making up for it. But I do not recommend them for any of my elk guys. Yeah. I, I don't know because I feel like their success is on me. And if they make a crappy shot and, and I'm going to, I'll tell them the same thing. Like you make a bad shot, you're still going to blame me. And so I'm going to give you something that's going to push through that backside shoulder. Right. Right. That and makes sense. I had a Levi and he shot, he's got now he's got an 80 pound bow at 27 inches shooting 307 feet per second. Mm -hmm. And he shot one square in the chest and he shot it with a mechanical. Really? It went all the way to the elk rear end, and he walked, I think he said, maybe like eight steps. Hmm. Yeah, see, I had a guy um, here locally. I don't, I forget his name, but I wouldn't say it anyways if I did. And he shot, I think, one at like 10 yards, shot yeah. it right in the sternum, and he didn't get shit for penetration. Yeah. And I don't know what he was using. I know it was probably a fixed blade, but I don't know what he was using or anything. And that was – they never found the bull or anything. But shot yeah. it right through that hard part. I'm like, man – I have a hard time believing my arrows would do that. You know, my arrows are going asshole right. out, you know, like they are going and I, that bull this year, uh, I've had the best penetration I've ever had on, on a bull at that range. Um, and it was just, it was just, I don't know. It was just impressive, really impressive. And I reached for the mechanical originally cause I had a sever one and a half in my quiver Right. And, uh, the bull's out there and, and, um, I start reaching for it and I have my hand on the arrow and I'm like, no, I can't, I couldn't do it. Like I wanted to so bad to kill that bull with a, with a mechanical cause I've never used one before, but I, right. I, I reached for the fixed plate instead. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to use what I know, <laughs> you know, and it, it best case scenario, hit it right where I wanted and it died very quickly. But, um, for deer this year, I think I'll, I'm going to try the, uh, sever one and a halfs. Um, and those from the testing that we've done have been really, really solid heads. And everybody I've heard that has used, that's used them has really liked them too, penetration that's wise. What, that's what that elk was shot with. A sever? Really? Mm -hmm. And I can talk about him because um, he's a good friend of mine and we, we, we've already had this on a cast. But man, when he told me, he said, you're not going to believe what that arrow did. Now, <laughs> but we weren't shooting a super light arrow and we were shooting a crazy high poundage bow. Mm -hmm. And I believe the shot was in that 30 yard range mm. dead on. And he knew exactly where to hit him through was softer. He wasn't putting it right in the middle of the bone. Mm -hmm. But when it goes all the way out the rear, that's, that's, that says something about that arrow. Especially the, the mechanical too, cause that's yeah. just a momentum sucker really. I mean, those things, uh, do you, how heavy of an arrow do you up it? Like if you're going to shoot a, say a 450 grain arrow for uh, like a fixed blade, mm -hmm. how much would you increase that? to use a mechanical if you're wanting to in, in your mind get the same penetration and stuff is there is there a certain amount of weight that you would kind of have a equation or formula for i i don't have a specific equation for that a lot of times what i'll do is 
we've just been shooting expandables for so long that if they're shooting a higher poundage bow in a, in a regular draw length, I may, I may raise them. I actually just may take the head up to a, a 125 as opposed to a hundred grain. Mm. And for like our whitetail guys, I don't change much at all. I, I, I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. Really? I, I, I just haven't had, and all my customers have been super happy with their mechanicals on whitetails. I, I would say 85%, which is a big deal. I this year am shooting a mechanical because I mean a, a fixed blade because I've made I've had a lot of quartering away shots on whitetail and again mule deer out here are 400 pounds they're that big huge holy crap they eat peanuts all day long and they go bad and they go back to the peanuts and there's layers of fat like you see on elk up north really I mean, yes insane. I had no idea and so I want to be able to push through at a quartering away shot if I have to and blast through a backside shoulder. And I've done it a million times with a standard, just little old slick trick, hmm. just blasting through. The one thing that I do add is if I have a customer low poundage and they're wanting to use an expandable, first of all, I'll try to talk them out of it. <laughs> Number two, I find one that's maybe a, a low kinetic energy head where I think believe they open at 45. You have to, they'll open easier at 45 and we'll add weight brass in and usually about 50 grains of brass. Hmm. Okay. So we may, they may go to a hundred with a low kinetic energy opening one, and then we'll add 50 grains of brass to the front and just make sure our, then we'll retune this to the spine. That's really interesting. And in 400 pound freaking mule deer, a big mule deer around here is 220, 200. I'll be huge. Really? And so like we, uh, my neighbor shot one little, little boy, little nine year old shot one. I got him on the scales. They had him gutted and he was hitting three, <laughs> that's ridiculous three something i forgot what it was exactly i've got a picture of it and you can't lift them really yeah uh, that's like a that's like a year old elk you know like yeah. a that's but crazy. We're, getting, we're getting eight and a half year old deer here we're not getting oh we're not, we're not shooting a lot of three and four year olds we're shooting eight and a half year old mule deer that are ro roman nosed and their bellies sway really i'd love to see something like that that's pretty cool yeah, around here, um, you know, I, I, we were talking, I was talking to somebody the other day, they killed a 13-year-old blacktail, and I'm like, that is the oldest blacktail I have ever heard of. Like, that is an ancient, that's a dinosaur for, for deer around here. Like, you kill a five- or six-year-old deer, that's an old buck. Right, right. So, uh, but, you know, you get up in the, into some of these cascades, and, and you know, a seven-, eight-, nine-year-old deer, that's, you know, because they can escape better, and a lot of them right. migrate and stuff, and... They're just like ghosts around here, you know. Well, I probably like a whitetail. Where do do your guys' deer become nocturnal at all? Um, are so mule deer around here? Not really. We're in a unique area with a limited season. We have a nine day season. Oh, really? And I mean, it's open and closed, and it's done. There's not an early archery season. There's nothing else because we have limited animals available. Now it's over the counter. Huh. Got to have landowner permission, but you're not getting chased all the time. Uh my buddy that shot the 200 inch deer last year, the deer was betting 30 yards from where he was coming into the peanuts. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, it was, that's how they are. Now our whitetail. So hunt Kansas a lot. Obviously our whitetail do go, go nocturnal or as they get older, you don't see them during the day um, as much. That's interesting. Yeah. Our blacktails, um, we were actually supposed to go down South to my buddy's ranch, uh, for Kim's rifle tag for blacktail. And he, he texts me. He's like, man, it's not worth it. He's like, 
the weather's 60 something degrees, 70 degrees. And my trail cam picks are from 11 PM to 4 AM. And he's yep. like, you're, you can come down, but you're wasting your gas pretty much. And so we're going to yep. hunt somewhere up here, just basically waste some gas. But, um, it's just really interesting that there's the same behavior there. Now what for rain, rain is like killer for blacktail over here. Like super great. Uh, what's that affect? How's that affect your deer over there? In our part of the state, I have seen our deer bed down a lot in the rain. Hmm. And we're in the desert. Like we, I don't know what our actual rainfall is. I should have known that, but we don't get a lot of rain. So when it rains, it freaks them out a little bit. Hmm. If it's a light sprinkle, we have a little bit of a fog afterwards or before, then I expect movement. Hmm. If we're getting a downpour, our deer are there in a mesquite and they're not moving. Really? They're huh. not moving. I've noticed that with the Rockies where, where I hunt over in Eastern Oregon, um, rain's not, not good. It kegs them up. Snow is okay. Uh, hmm. Thunder and storm systems like that are no good. And then typically right after it rains, they're out. And it's just like over here, um, this year, it was a really wet year on the coast for us. And, uh, you know, we would be, my buddies would be in on a bull bugling. He'd be pissed off. You know, they're within shooting them range. Like they're close. It'd start raining and he'd shut up, you know, it's just like, and then everybody, everybody wants to say, well, oh, well, you have to get closer cause he's still bugling cause it's so thick. And I'm like that, that, that elk shut up. He, like, I don't know how, how else to describe it. How close do you want us to be? 40 yards, 30 yards. <laughs> so it's just really different. And, and those elk live on the coast where it's a rainforest. It's like, why does rain even affect what you do? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out these these elk, because this year, I, you know, every year it's like, oh, I got them figured out, and then every year they prove you wrong, kind of thing. Um, right. But we we had a, we had a pretty good year over here, but it still feels like we bought we got our butts kicked. But uh, every time I look on Instagram, you're killing stuff. So <laughs> I, I'm still having a pretty good year. But I've got a question about the elk. Sure. Uh, I have only been on two elk hunts, and one was in New Mexico private land. Mm-hmm. Um, no shame in saying I went private land. It was amazing. I was on bull elk every daggum day. Yeah. I shot one and he went on to the neighbor and the neighbor wouldn't let us retrieve him. Seriously. And the game warden said, I'm covering a million acres and don't have time to mess with this. And so I left last year and I can picture that bull to this day standing there broadside 20 yards. Boom. Um, And so this year we go to Colorado over the counter and have a really, really good hunt. Mm -hmm. But then it starts raining. Mm -hmm. We saw nothing. And I think it's because we don't know how to elk hunt. (laughs) <laughs> but um, we didn't – it shut them up. We weren't seeing them moving, and it, it, that was two or three days of our hunt, and we were hunting hard. Of course, probably scaring more elk than we were actually hunting. But mm-hmm. that, that's stuff that we had no clue of how rain would affect them. Yeah, so from what I've seen is is thick stuff. Um, they, they tend to keg up, you know, talking Rockies. Um, mm-hmm. our rosies will still be out feeding in units over here. And actually I killed mine in a unit and it was on and off showering. Uh, but from what I've seen is that they'll either, they'll either keg up. Um, and they, a lot of times they'll go, they'll go silent. Like they'll go really silent. Um, if you're having weather system, was it just raining nonstop for three days? Just nonstop. Yeah. So oh, your, your best God. thing is just to hit a thicket and basically still hunt and just walk slow. I mean, that's. That's your best bet. I, I personally would still bugle because I think um, if you look at things like um, in an order of priorities for an elk or for a deer, 
we we kind of say, well, this trumps that or this trumps that. A hot cow trumps everything. If you have a hot cow and you have the right herd, it don't mm-hmm. matter what the weather's doing. It doesn't matter the pressure. They're gonna be they're gonna be active. They're gonna be rutting. So a lot of times, um, you're either gonna hunt that thick stuff or you're just gonna probably like get just keep pounding, pounding, pounding away, and then eventually you're gonna find that right bull or the right cow. And so, um, like I have buddies, well, uh, buddies that bugle, they'll bugle 200 times a day. I'm no different. I bugle, I bugle off every ridge, off of every road, every two, 300 yards I'm bugling. I'm one of those guys that people hate, you know, but that it's effective. It does work. So, um, honestly, I think, I think your odds do go down. You have to work way, way exponentially harder, or you just hit a thicket and you just, a thicket that you know that they're into, that you know that you've seen them into. Um, and this is another thing that that we do over here on the coast is where do the elk go when they get pushed? Because usually there's two or three spots that predetermined where they're going to go. A lot of times it might even be circular. They'll just get pushed in like this little circular mm-hmm. area. Um, and so knowing where they go when they get pushed or when they get pissed or when they get kegged up just really exponentially increases. So first day of rifle season over here, which is coming up for Rockies, a lot of guys won't even hunt where the elk are at. Well, where the elk are at, they're going to hunt where the elk are going to be at in two hours when they get shot at. So, um, pretty interesting stuff there, but yeah, I, I've noticed the same stuff, man. What I do is cause I don't like still hunting. I don't like sitting around. I'm like ADD when I'm hunting. I have right. to constantly be doing something. I cover ground and my game plan may change. I may hunt even thicker stuff. Uh, but I'm I'm not dropping that bugle on the ground. I'm it's always in my hand, and I'm I'm just covering more ground and working harder is really all it is. What about when they uh, we got on a bull this year? From, even with the rain, we had a hunt that I could have never imagined. But we got on a bull that was not bugling. He was doing this, <clears throat> like a growl, like a crazy growl. And I was like, what the heck? And my buddy said. Oh, he's mad. We better start getting him. <laughs> we called him in, but I was like, I don't even know an elk made that sound. Just a growl. Like a growl. Yeah. Gosh, it was loud too. Just like horse, mm. like he was a smoker. Probably a big bull then. Yeah, he was he was big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I there's all sorts of my buddy Mike would be a great guy for you to talk to sometime. Mike Batiste from Elk Calling Academy. Um, he's really opened my eyes to the actual language, you know, like, uh, different, different types of calls and stuff like that. And, and the more, uh, every year, it seems like we try raking more and more and more and more every year. Um, there was a, a call I learned about from a, a buddy of mine who's 16 years old. Um, and it was just like this, like moan, it was a bugle moan. It was the best way I can describe it. I'd never heard it in my life. But apparently it worked really well. Um, he used it in competition and no one knew what the hell he was doing. But um, <laughs> uh, apparently, you know, there's I'm sure there's sounds that I've never even heard. Um, to be honest with you, I, I, without being there in the situation, I couldn't tell you what that growl was. Um, it was just weird, man. It was the weirdest thing ever. And then he came back to about 30 yards mm-hmm. and he let out a legitimate bugle and he was chuckling. And um, I, I think they were saying it's like a, I don't remember, but it was, I just wondered if you'd ever heard that because it was like a bear growling, but then he'd have a little bit of a chuckle. And so we're like, Oh, it's definitely an elk. Mm. So my buddy sprinted down the ridge line. I mean, sprinted and he started bugling and I started doing a cow call and we started going towards each other. And then that bull just kept, he was coming up the hill going, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, just like horse. 
and then got the 30 yards and threw out a real bugle. And I think we just made him mad enough. Yeah. And- yeah. You just raising his temperatures is, is kind of what they call that. And, and, uh, so for us, uh, was that in Colorado or was that on? The- yeah. So, um, uh, a lot of times these high, was there a lot of people around? Was it high pressured area or were you guys around away from people? Yeah, there were people down below us. We were about we were at eleven eight, and there were people down in the valleys, and we were hunting the ridges. Okay, I've noticed, uh, and, and like this bull, my dad shot uh, two days ago. Two days ago, yeah, two days ago, um, they were bugling like a lot. Like every time I hit that cow call, I don't know if you saw the Instagram story or not. Every time I hit that cow call, that bull would answer right back, and uh, and, you know, I, I started originally thinking, oh, it doesn't sound like a big bull. But then we chased a bull for four days straight over Mount Emily, 350-inch bull. And he beagled literally 200 times a day. Like, all day long, he thrashed bushes, trees, whatever. Uh, one guy nicknamed him the Shredder because he just shreds everything he comes across. Like, he'd rub literally 100 times a day and bugle 200 times a day. And by the fourth day, he had pretty much lost his voice. And so he was just trying everything he could. And he sounded like a smoker. And then uh-huh. it's just kind of that, that graspy growl with a lot of air. And right. uh, that's about all he could do, <laughs> you know? So it's it's really hard to say. I mean, these bulls over here, there were some really, really stupid-sounding bugles that this bull made. And I just think that two months' worth of bugling, um, you know, their voice is hoarse. It's what they could do, you know? And maybe that bull was either really pressured and he was not wanting to bugle, but then you finally mm-hmm. got him pissed off enough to where he did. Or he had already just been losing his voice. I mean, it's really hard to say. Right. But uh, yeah, there's there's tons of different types of bugles out there, and, and I even uh, was experimenting with different types of call sequences this year. My buddy has uh, Mike has a breeding sequence. He he was showing me, and and um, you know I was trying all sorts of different things because when you're there after we shot our first bull, um, it only took us two days to get one bull on the ground. Uh, the first evening, I was the shooter. I couldn't get any more than 120. I didn't want to blow him out of there, so we backed out. We're in the timber. The next morning, we go in there. He's on the same same ridge, like within 200 yards of where he was, and we walk up into 35 yards and smoke him. My, my buddy smokes him, and and then it goes, I don't know. It must have been three. No. No, it was like a week and a half or a week and three days. I didn't hear or see another elk in a week and three days, and I hunted every day. Wow. And it was like you're getting bugles. I got bugles almost every day and then we kill that bull and then it was like, okay, now you have to earn it kind of thing. And just through, I think I hunted for 20 something days straight. And, uh, on the, finally I got, I got my shot at a bull. Um, it was a five point and I, I nicked, I heard my arrow nick a limb at about 30, 35 and the bull was at 54 and I got eight and a half inches of penetration. My arrow broke off and I never found him. I don't, mm. I don't know what happened. Um, it would take a lot for that arrow to stop at eight and a half inches. It was, we'll put it that way. And right. so I was going to punch my tag, called a few buddies. I'm like, don't do it. You know, you're not, you're not a, one of those guys just flinging arrows, you know? So I didn't. And then, uh, two weeks later I ended up, or a week later, I ended up shooting that really nice, um, five or six point, whatever you want to call them. Um, and that was at 80, 82, probably 80 shot it for 80, but it hit a little low. And it passed through at 80 yards. I mean, just smoked him. Yeah. And so, but that guy out in a unit, it was sprinkling on and off. Uh, He had five cows. He did not stink at all, but he had been, but he had been rubbing and he, he wouldn't bugle. And there was bulls around him that were bugling. So 
I don't know. It's just a really weird year. Like I said, as soon as you think you got it figured out, man, they, they show you, nope, here's something new. So, they change on you. They, they change I, on you. But y'all have access to public land. Oh, a lot. Yeah. You know, to be fair, private timberland is where most of your animals around here are killed. Uh, BLM doesn't log. They, they do a lot of thins. Uh, so mm. they selective harvest the timber. Uh, Forest Service doesn't really do anything. Um, so most of your animals concentrate on the open areas of feed with the units and stuff like that. And so probably 80% of your animals are probably killed on timberland. Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? So, uh, like here, um, I'm pointing cause literally I can see where I killed my bull right over there. Um, uh, it's it like, uh, we have Roseburg lumber, we have warehouser, we have oh, okay. Seneca, all these private timberlands. Some of them make you pay rainier warehouser they make you pay to access their lands um and then some of them you can only enter on certain like fire dangers or this time of year um you can enter them anytime some of them you have to have written permission some of them is no period you're not coming onto our property whether it's snowing or whether no you're not coming onto our property so uh, but there is a lot of public land and people treat a lot of the timberlands because um what well, it basically is i mean anybody can go on there like public land, even though it's not. So, um, oh, cool. there's a lot of places to hunt, but technically it is private. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. We don't we have elk in Texas and they are low fenced in some places. They're actually, um, they're considered non-native, mm -hmm. even though they one time were all over Texas hmm. down in, um, Van Horn and a couple of those areas and they're 400 inch bulls. Seriously. But you pay twenty grand for them. Oh Jesus! Um, yeah. So if you have the opportunity to do that, it's fantastic. But um, and then we'll randomly get some that that are running around here from New Mexico, and my, one of my buddies is a farmer here, and they had a bull that they think had tra came out of New Mexico down here to the desert and was out on their field, and he he got him. Really? Uh, but we don't have access to elk like some of the western states do. Yeah. It's, it's just much different, but we have lots and lots of hunting. We can hunt pigs year round and varmints year round. We don't have a special season for coyotes. We just shoot them. Yeah. Same uh, thing here. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause I was in Kansas a week or two ago. You can't shoot raccoons. You can't shoot all kinds of stuff. You have to have these special tags, um, fur harvester tags. Really? And then there's a season in November. So I've never know what other States are like when it comes to hunting. Yeah. Oregon is an opportunity state. Um, okay. Now, we have a vast majority of our public lands. You're probably east of uh, 97, which is like a, um, a highway that cuts Oregon in half. Um, yeah. And so you have like the desert side of it and then like the Mule Deer Rockies. And then on the west side of it, it's where I'm at. Um, thick, a lot more rain, um, vegetation, trees, uh, a lot more timberlands because there's more timber. But on the mm -hmm. other side, um, I, I love hunting eastern Oregon more. I think it's just it's easier. Um, there's more animals, bigger animals. Um, the elk are more aggressive, I think, um, or more willing to call. You have to work harder over here. Every, uh, we've got it down to about every four days we get a shot at a bull over in Eastern Oregon, even on a shitty year. It's every, almost like clockwork every four days. Wow. If we get one earlier, so be it. But on average, it's four days over here. Like I said, it was, uh, we got that one right off the bat and then it was, it was, I don't know. Most of our bulls came within the last two weeks, but our our killing to to hunting ratio, I don't know what it was. It was probably 
15 days to one bowl, you know, it was, it was a hard year. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's much more, cause these, these are more territorial. So, mm-hmm. um, where Rocky will cover more ground, if you get a Rosie over here and you get him pissed off, um, or if you get one that is just in a spot where he wants to be, he's going to hold his ground way more than maybe a Rocky would. So, um, just very stark differences, but very, you know, elks, elks and elk, you use the same sounds, you know, they do the same things, except rosies are more territorial and they don't cover as much ground. So if you bump a rosie, they'll maybe go, you know, just over the drainage and then stop in the next creek. Over here, you bump an elk over in Eastern Oregon, they go five miles before they stop, you know. But it's it's pretty cool, man. I mean, I, I love it. If you, if you ha- ever come to Oregon, you should just hit me up. We'll try and get you out on something. We need to. I need to come make you come sit, come sit in a deer stand for eight <laughs> hours and try to shoot something. I've never done it. I've never sat in a tree stand, and I've never been in a blind. But I do have a blind this year, and – I, it sounds stupid. I, I want to kill something out of it just to try hunting a different way, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I, I might. I don't know. I'm too ADD for that stuff. <laughs> it, it is tough for me. But, in you know, in Kansas or out here, we sit – I used to sit tree stands. I've gotten too old now. Now I'll get something where I can run a heater or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I'm comfortable, man, I'll sit out there all day long. <laughs> oh, yeah. so bored. Um, you know, because – depending on the area you may see a hundred deer come through mm-hmm. in some areas you may see one a day and that mm-hmm. one a day place is just dragging on and on is the one a deer place is bigger bucks though way bigger yeah that's it. i don't know what it is like uh there's always spots that you always hear about like oh yeah you know there's not a lot of deer but the ones you see are monsters kind of things and you just always hear about those places. We have those in Oregon too, where it's like, yeah, you might see half as many or, 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 or barely any deer, but if you see a buck, it's a monster. So do you see many white, y'all have whitetail in Oregon or no? Yeah, we got two species of them. Um, okay. we got the Columbians around here where a big one's 110 pounds. Um, and then we got the, the regular Eastern whitetails over, uh, actually where we were hunting elk, um, there was a bunch of whitetail. Um, oh yeah. And that's about an hour from the Idaho border. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's there's a good population of elk over in the northeast part of Oregon, um, and then you know you start getting around like John Day. There's there's a lot of whitetails starting at John Day and going east. So, we got okay. a good population of them. Y'all have got an interesting state to say the least. I got a buddy that works up there for um, a wool company, um, really famous wool company. Pendleton. Yeah, Pendleton. Yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He works up there for them, and he just designed some uh, a rug through them that has an Oregon flag on it. And okay. All that. He they live by the Deschutes River, and so I know there's a lot of we talk hunting, but there's a lot of steelhead fishing. Yeah, the Deschutes is really popular for that. Yeah, cool river y'all, too. Yeah, do y'all do you do that when y'all are hunting, or are you just solely focus on? I'm not going to fish. Um, fishing takes a backseat. Yeah. For me, um, elk trumps everything. <laughs> so. I'm, there's there's certain tags where and what sucks is is uh you know your your deer and your and your elk typically start at the same time and they end at the same time so you can kill one while doing the other but if you really want to get it done focusing on one seems to be for me to be the best thing so there's been um a couple uh, hunts for deer that i've been going on or wanting to go on and so i'll take my very very beginning like first weekend or first week of bow season when elk season's open it's not mm-hmm. going to be as productive as the rest of the elk season. So I'll spend that. Cause that's your most productive time for deer. 
that early season when they're fat, lazy, you can get away with a lot more. Um, shoot, some of these bucks you could almost probably go up and just walk up to and just get lucky. You know, I mean, it's pretty pretty silly how dumb these bucks are early in the season. Um, I, I use that time to focus on a big deer, and then uh, the rest of my time, it's it's all elk. Unless I see a giant buck, it's it's all elk. It, it don't matter. <laughs> yeah. So for, for public ground in Texas, what opportunities is there for a guy like me to come over there and try and kill something? There are. And believe it or not, we even have a draw system. You um, do? Yes. We are known for our private land, which 97% of the state is privately held. But oh. our 3% of our land that is publicly held is larger than majority of states' actual public land. Really? Oh, yes. So there are lots of opportunities. Um and as a non-resident, there are there are actually bow hunting places that you just go sign in at the counter on some of these lakes, and you can just you get you buy your out-of-state license with your deer tag, and you can go bow hunting. Um, hmm. Not as many opportunities for uh, the whitetail with a rifle over the counter, but there are a lot of our state lakes and in places like that that allow for public land bow hunting. Really, we, that's, that's my college life, man. We would drive two hours get there no money we have we had we had the money for our tags and we'd go in and start hunting hmm. and we killed animals that way so with with texas because texas is a huge freaking state like it's one of the huge. biggest states isn't it yes like it's probably alaska than texas i'm guessing alaska is bigger and then i believe us yes sir yeah the giant state so three percent actually does make sense when you say it's probably bigger than most people's so is that three percent all in one area or is it kind of scattered around scattered around oh, okay. and so there's some in the panhandle, um, and there's some out east. There's some down south. It's spread out. There's a lot more in East Texas, again, because the, um, the logging companies out there mm -hmm. do allow access to. And so they'll set up so the state works with them. So you guys have logging in Texas too, huh? Yeah, but out east. So like we, you were, we were talking about the river, and I get so excited about people fishing because we drive two hours <laughs> to the lake from where we're located. Uh-huh. Whereas some of my buddies have property within 10 minutes of a lake. And so we're, we have so many, we have mountains in Texas. You know, we have um, that public land. The opportunities are neat because if you either do the public land draw and you draw a tag. Some of those whitetail hunts that you can draw for, you can shoot as many exotics as you want um, based on the regulations for that ranch that you're on. Exotics on public? On public. Seriously. So you like be going down the highway and there's a zebra on public land or something, so, like, something better, like that. Better clarify exotics. So like there's a, <laughs> lot, of, a lot of Axis, Audad. Um, oh, that'd be cool. Black bucks and animals like that that have, maybe they were introduced to a ranch um, and then they spread out. And so they've gotten onto some of the state land and you can shoot them. Really? You know, within the regulations of that property. And, and another thing cool that Texas does is that a lot of you guys out there may not know about uh, is that in that draw system that they do, it's, it's hard to draw, but you can draw for, uh, I believe they're called like the now guy, like a, like a, the mm -hmm. game, they have large, big, real mm -hmm. animals. You can draw for those on private ranches because they need them thinned out. So it, they don't charge you a trespass fee or anything? They just No, you got to put in for the draw. And I think uh, for us, it was $9. I don't remember what the non-resident fee is to put in for those draw hunts. Really? Oh, you can shoot them. 
and you take the animal with you. Really? It's, it's, it's really cool because they need them thinned out. They sometimes they need white tail does thinned out. You can put in for alligator hunts, pig hunts, turkey hunts. There's a lot of opportunity that people just don't know, even within the state of Texas, don't understand the opportunity that's there. Yeah. So for me, I'd like, like, I'll have to start doing some research or talk to you more because I really want to start branching out. But if I could kill an Audad and a, and a Niljai or whatever it's called in the same trip, you know, like that would be so amazing. Like Audad are just so, such a cool animal. And, and I've heard that they're amazing to hunt and they're fun to hunt. Um, but I've never, never shot a whitetail ever. Never even hunt. Okay. I've never, I've hunted Colombian whitetails when I was a kid and I had a youth tag and I still shot a blacktail. <laughs> so I'd like to come over and, and, uh, my buddy, uh, was supposed to take me over there. Um, was it cri- around Christmas and his family has like a private outfitting ranch or something for whitetails. Mm-hmm. And we were going to shoot, um, a bunch of pigs and I was going to be allowed like one buck, probably like around 130, 140 inch. He said, and then um, all the meat from the pigs would go to f- feed some sort of charity for kids or something like right. that. And uh, I, I think it fell through, which sucks. But um, so that kind of put a bug in my head. I'm like, I need to get over there and, and see what all this about. My actually, my wife has family that lives there. And um, you ever heard of like the Scorpion Ranch? Um, I haven't. No, sir. No. But don't forget how how many ranches there are. There's all tons. They have some sort of outfitting ranch, I think. There, it's called the Scorpion okay. Ranch. And anyways, they kill. I think. Probably like most of these ranchers, they kill ridiculously sized deer. <laughs> so, but it'd be cool. Well, yeah, it would definitely be cool to make it over there, especially if there's just like a last minute guy is like, oh, I got a week I need to spend on vacation. I can just go over there and buy a tag and go public land hunting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you have to research each specific area that you're going to. And so the best place to do is to go on the Texas um, website for mm-hmm. Texas wildlife and start looking at those those units that are available um because even me i I hunt so much private land here Mm -hmm. i don't know all the rules and regulations behind it i know that i've hunted them um i know that i put it for the draw for them but there's so many opportunities i don't know the exact rules like we have a bighorn draw here really i think your chances are point oh 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 whatever that sounds like oregon (laughs) but we have them um and when it comes to the pig hunting, they are such a detriment to land here. Um, we go out at night with thermals, suppressors, a Bronco with a like a 14-inch TV screen in it, <laughs> and then a gimbal with a thermal on top. Oh, wow. And we see the fields. You pick up on the heat, and then you go waylay as many pigs as you can. Really? Because they're, they're doing thousands of dollars a night in damage to crops. Hmm. And then there are a lot of families here that benefit from the meat. Um, yeah. if we, if we can't eat them all, there's people that will. Yeah. There's, there's, I heard somebody talking and they were kind of fired up about the problem in Texas and then, and then the same, it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's a problem with the hogs in Texas, but then you have landowners that also want to charge you for their problem to go on there and hunt their, their pigs. And, and somebody was like, that's kind of a funny contrast, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, I guess if you put it that way, yeah, I guess it's interesting. Like they complain about the hogs, but yet give me 500 bucks kind of thing at the same time so do you see that a lot over there where we are absolutely not um so when i was in school and college when we were down in south texas i had a guy that told me come kill as many as i wanted to anytime i wanted to really Um, and up here we have the farmers that'll call my buddies that have all that cool gear and they'll say hey we have pigs on us come kill them we want them gone Uh uh-huh 
but that's they have they have the revenue of their farm to offset the need to be paid to kill the pigs. Where if you get into an area of lower economic develop lower ec- economic development where they don't have as much to support the family, maybe not the farm's not doing as well. Mm-hmm. I understand like hey, we need them kill, but it is a revenue source for us. Um, and I get that side. It's like a guy that when we're fixing a bow and I'm paying guys to be in a shop, electricity and everything else. It's tough to give certain things away for free. Oh, right. Um, right. Yeah. An economy going. Um, but yeah, I think it's silly too. I mean, if you need them killed, don't say you need them killed and then have these outrageous prices for them. Right. You can come down here. And you can yeah. Have to pay. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. So like when I went down to California to hunt that, um, that was like a $1,300 hunt for yeah. a hawk, for one hawk. And yeah. uh, the tag was 80 bucks plus your license and stuff like that. And they acknowledge we have a problem, but yet now that they're in demand, we're going to charge you for it, which I get it. You know, make that money if you can, but don't come bitching to me when your crop, you know, goes to hell right, or something. Right. <laughs> so. You need to come out here and, and do this. Huh? Yeah. Do this hunt. It's not for everybody. You may not want to kill a hundred pigs in a night. Uh, <laughs> benefit there is that you are you are actually helping somebody that calls you and says hey i've y'all got to come kill them you have to we can't stay on top so you just leave them lay or do you do you take all the meat or because what do you do with the 100 pigs um it really depends um if we have um farmhands or individuals that want it you know we'll tell them hey we got these pigs come take them and during ginning season and and things like that we can take them to the gin we have um some workers that want them Uh, they they use it to eat on. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that everybody uses them. I would say that they get left a lot. You don't have to have a license here to hunt pigs. Yeah. That's, it's sad. It's that big of a problem, you know, like, uh, kind of like the, uh, pythons in Florida kind of thing. They're yes. just taking over. And yes, I hate snakes. So, <laughs> so. I, I would like to go on one of those hunts and catch one of those, get one of those snakes. It'd be pretty cool. Really? Man, I, yeah. uh, man, like when I was a kid, I remember Anaconda's, the movie just scared the living crap out of me. Like I, I have a fear of snakes. We actually killed a rattlesnake this year with a rock. Oh, really? <laughs> that was, there was a lot of rattlesnakes out this year during, during September even, or oh. even October. Actually it was in October. They were still out trying to kill people. You know, like I, I don't get it. Like this one, we were just walking down the road and it starts buzzing at us. And I'm like, whoa, like we would have no idea you were there unless you started buzzing at us. And, and he was, we were like four feet away and he was striking at us. Like we were in Oregon, in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. We got plenty of rattlesnakes um, here. I've, I, I know guys that go out and they, they'll go kill, they hunt them. They'll go mm-hmm. kill two or three a night um, driving, oh, wow. driving down like uh, riddle or cow Creek or about an hour South of here. And then uh, just uh, 20 minutes over here, um, we killed that rattlesnake. And then uh, another guy that same day almost stepped on one about this this big around as the bottom of that oh, wow. cup. And he's like, it was a giant. And he said it struck at his boot. Um, what kind are they? Um, I just, uh, just, I don't know, rattlesnakes. Uh, we have the Eastern Diamondback, I think. Oh, really? I think. I Don't quote me on that because it's, it's straight up desert. Over in right. Houston, Oregon, but over here, there a lot of timber rattlers. They're like a greenish. Um, mm-hmm. The one that we killed was pretty darn brown, um, even though it was over here in the timbered area. Um, and I, I imagine they come in different colors, you know. But um, I just know a rattlesnake is a rattlesnake. I don't know what species they, they are. They taste good, too. Do they? Uh, they do. They taste, they taste I, good. Man, I, 
I, I, I can barely bring myself to even touch the skin of a dead one, man. It's just, I don't know. I, I can't do it. <laughs> they have a roundup out here about two hours from us where they go and they get all the snakes and do it. It's called the rattlesnake roundup. It's about as Texas as you can get. Really? Yeah. They cook them there and they have pits full of hundreds of them and guys picking them up and Sweetwater uh, rattlesnake roundup. Really? I think I've seen stuff on that. Like they have a huge, uh, like a, like an arena full of snakes or something yeah. like that. And they just, people yeah. just putting snakes in there. It'll be like a I don't, 500 snakes in their freaking arena. People walking around, kicking them and shit. It's really it's crazy. And there'll be a guy that lays down and they put them in a sleeping bag with him. I've seen that. I've seen that. Oh, to me, you, you yeah. won't do that, huh? Well, yeah, I posted a video the other day of me, uh, of, of I was filling a feeder and I had a rattlesnake. I jumped, I always wear snake boots. I always do. I jump over this fence and go to like doing something. And this time I'm actually wearing flip flops <laughs> and a big diamond back is maybe eight inches away from where I step. And he just slithers off, does not rattle. Because um, out here they're saying they're not rattling as much because the pigs will get at them. Oh, really? And kind of like when the elk get quiet, same thing. He just slithered off. Man, my heart was racing. I jumped back up. I got in the back of the truck. And I was like, oh. I saw I threw these, these bags of corn down on the ground and made a bridge over to the feeder. <laughs> so you guys still get jumped, you know, like you get jumped. Like I have friends that aren't afraid of snakes unless they're surprised by one. Yeah, and then that's when it's not okay. But if like they see the snake before they're too close, before they get surprised, then it's it's just might as well be a stick, you know. Like they don't care. Um, do you quail hunt much? We've got quail here. I don't. I don't really go after them. Uh, most of the quail we kill, like if we're driving around and then there's a cubby right off the road, you can okay. go jump them and kill them. We've got a lot of that out here, and and I will tell you, you want to see me jumping is have a rattlesnake jumping about the same time that I'm shooting quail, and that that's. <laughs> He'll be getting shot. Really? It's, everybody will be shooting at him. He's down. <laughs> Do you guys have yeah. grouse there too? Do what? You have grouse there too? We don't have grouse. Um, we've got bob white quail and blue quail. In the northern part of the state, we do have pheasant. Hmm. But uh, that, I believe, in, in turkey, those are mainly our game birds. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you guys have big turkeys. Yes, we do have some big turkeys. Yeah. We have a, like a subspecies of big turkey here. Like it'd be like a Colombian whitetail to a whitetail. Okay. So like we have turkeys, but a big turkey would be like 15 pounds probably. 20 okay. pounds. And I think you guys' turkeys get bigger than that, don't they? Yeah, we have some. In, depending on your area, I mean, it really, we're, again, from the north part to the south part of the state, you're going to see a big difference in game size and um, all, in all game from turkeys to, to the deer and mule deer. Mule deer north of us three hours are nowhere near like our mule deer here in our county. Really? Nowhere near. Not not antler-wise, not body-wise, not movement-wise. And then you go south and west of us. And I was talking to a guy on a ranch, and he was telling me that they, they call us from their mule deer, and they travel 40 miles during the rut. Holy crap. Ours travel 30 feet. <laughs> they're just, just because the food is here they don't have to move that makes sense yeah that's interesting so well is there anything else because we're at an hour and 16 here man how long do your podcast usually go for man we're we're like 30 minutes and we're done with that um uh, but I, do, 
I want to know what your uh, perceptions of Texas are. What have you heard from being out west? Uh, a lot of private land, a lot of exotics, um, and that's pretty much it. Is is good luck? Good luck finding public land, and um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Is whitetail? Um, I I I hear that there's small whitetail, big whitetail. I've heard both um, there, but it's mostly public lands and pay to play and exotics, exotics, exotics. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. And, and I hear stuff about, well, you can't shoot. All you ever do is sit on a feeder. It's all y'all. It's yeah. all, all, it's a hit all time. And I believe that once you're in the state and you see the issue we have with the number of whitetails we have, like Ozona, you, I think you have five deer tags there for whitetail. Hmm. I mean, there, there's an issue with them. But you get some of these other parts of the state, and you're going to see more spot and stock opportunities because your mesquite bushes aren't so big that you can actually hunt. Um, but it, there is a lot of feeders. There are a lot of that. It's kind of like when we look out west, we see guys wearing flat bill hats and, <laughs> and, and a pack on their back 24-7 running down a road with crazy muscles and yeah. uh, <laughs> unique accents. Um, but in reality, we all have some unique ways to hunt that are that are – location specific um, yeah well I, I i don't know anybody that does the flat brim stuff personally <laughs> uh, those are few and far between um i don't know about those flat brim guys i i don't i don't sell a flat brim hats and i don't do flat brim hats but hey if they if someone wants to do a flat brim hat like uh eric chesser or something i think that's uh his name um kills a lot yeah. of shit and he's he's good at it but Dude, I man, just, I, too. yeah, I just, I don't know. I, if I did it, I'd feel like a hipster kind of thing yeah. or a, or a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah. A hipster, I guess. I don't know. I've just never been into the flat brims because around here, a lot of the, a lot of the guys that wear flat brims, they keep the stickers on the bottom, that shiny circular sticker, like on a sports <laughs> hat. And I'm like, I don't want to be associated with that guy. Cause most of those guys are yep. tweakers too. Uh, we get a lot of tweakers around here. But yeah, <laughs> that's so far off topic, but, um, but yeah, the muscles, like I, I work out, um, quite often, but I mean, I just got body fat percentage the other day. I'm like fat piece of crap, 17%, you know, like, and before our hunting season, I was down to like 14, which is, isn't good by any means, but, um, just through bear season and, and not hitting the gym the last two months, I'm back up to 17%. So I'm working to get back down to there, but yeah, I, I mean, if you want to come out here and you want to be successful and you want to do the mountain thing, you better put in the work prior. Um, and, and you know, the Cameron Haynes running a marathon a day isn't necessary, but I guarantee you he's having way more fun at the top of the hill than the other guys are, you know, I bet she is too. Cause I've been there. I've been the guy from Texas. Yep. Um, uh, and, and for, from flatland to that mountain in Colorado, I, and I work out every single day, nonstop. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not up to, marathon status but I, I just love it it's something i enjoy and i didn't get sore my gosh it gets depressing when you're hunting a mountain and you're climbing up and you're not finding elk and <laughs> i think it's, you know like cameron haynes mental ability to go do those things and keep pushing and yeah and the guys that are out there that know what it takes because we come out from a perspective of i'm gonna climb a mountain i need to go run a little bit and get in shape yeah. So what I do is, um, I, I take real world feedback from my body. So like, um, when, after this hunting season, I knew what I needed to work on. I knew my left ankle was messed up. My right hip was messed up 
and my quads and um, like hams were needing more work. Like I needed Mm -hmm. more butt strength and more, more quad strength. And so I've been doing a lot more of that. Um, and then, uh, hit since, since Elksy, since the end of September. And so now a fast forward to here, um, I was developing, um, what my, what my trainer was saying, my, my buddy's a, works at the gym. He's not a personal trainer, but, um, I was telling him what was going on with my foot. And he said, I had a plant at the beginning, like a plantar fasciitis or whatever mm-hmm. the hell it's called. It's like a tendon that runs along the bone of your foot. And he's like that, that thing there's hurting you. And, um, so I, I was worried about that and it was actually, it was more like a rock in your shoe. It wasn't super painful, but I could feel it and it was getting worse every time I'd go get on it. And so I, I stayed off of that for three days, but, um, after packing out my dad's elk, both my hips were kind of hurting a little bit. And so I've been doing like this, uh, plyo, there's a word for it, man, but you like body movements and then you like rub like foam rollers or rollers over your hips and and stuff. And so I've been, I've been more like specialty and and specialized in specific trainings for the areas on top of all the other stuff I've been doing. So, um, that's, that's the cool thing. I try and hunt 24 seven, try and hunt year round now. That's, that's for the last two years, that's been my goal. Um, and so I'm getting all this real world feedback. So I know, well, my, my, my quads are really weak. I could barely, you know, if I'm going up steep elevation stuff, you know, your, your quads are going to kill you. Your ass is going to hurt, you know, that, that your body will tell you what you need to work on. So, um, that's kind of been my thing. And I, I do, I try and do cardio every time I work out. Um, I've added fat burning on top of that now, so I can get back down to, I want to get down to 12%. Um, I'm a small guy, so I want to be like 165, 170 right now. I'm 160, uh, 162. Um, but 12% at 165 or 170. And so, yeah, that's, that's, you know, for guys that are thinking they need to be in in super good shape, you do. If you want to have more fun, you do, you know, and I think if you can get to the hill and you're, you're able to regain your breath quicker, there's obviously a benefit there. Um, But there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I think guys are are looking at these huge, huge guys and they're kind of getting it blown out of proportion. Um, I would rather be able to shoot my bow more accurately than, than, run 26 miles, you know, or whatever right. it may be. So it's really a priority in, in whatever, you know, your, your guys' personal goals are. But I, I see that a lot, and I hear that a lot from Eastern guys is how in shape do I need to be, you know, do I need to be running? I'm like, yeah, but, you know, you know, it's it's so it's so scenario and person dependent. I can't tell you what you need to do. You need to go out and hike with 60 pounds on your back for five miles and gain 2,000 feet elevation, and then you'll know what you need to work on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, your lungs expand them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, and I said it before on a podcast. You know, if you're the guy saying let's go over the next ridge, or if you're the guy in the back saying, "God damn, let's take a break." Which ones have a more fun? You know, right. And I want to enjoy hunting as much as I can, so I'm wanting to be the guy in the front pushing the pace. So, you know, it's 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 about how you know how get back, dog. About how dedicated and how how far deep do you want to go down the rabbit hole? You know, right. So. Um, that's my two cents there. I, I, I don't want anybody to ever get demotivated because they see these guys doing crazy, amazing things. Um, I'm, I'm, I got the weakest legs in my hunting group, period. My buddies have that retard strength in their legs that I don't know where they get it. They don't work on it. They don't, they don't work out. They just have it. And so I'm constantly struggling in the legs category. Um, Mitch and Anthony are both our mountain goats. Like 
I can't. Ooh. They don't train. Anthony trains a little bit. Mitch just he's super strong, but he he gets winded easily. But he's super strong. So um, I'm constantly building myself up to to meet where they're at, where I'm lacking. So and that's another priority of mine. So I, I don't know if you you do any of that stuff either, but. Yeah, we, we, I do. Um, the guy that I went with to Colorado this year, he's the guy that would drive you mad. <laughs> I was, I felt like I was in shape enough to handle it. I think I needed to get used to the altitude a little bit. Um, but I had no problem making the climbs that we were making. This guy did not work out at all. And he is a daggum mountain goat. And we'd get to the top. <laughs> like, Are you not like worn out? We've been doing this for five miles now. Are you not worn out? No, let's, let's go. Yep. Has never has not did not walk did not carry a pack did not practice he just naturally can get it. Yeah. So there's guys like that, and so you you have one of the Anthony's, you know, like uh, and I talk shit to him constantly, like you're such a dick. Like I had to earn this. You just you just naturally have it, man. Like I hate you. <laughs> but uh, so outside of that, I mean, um, I I'll have to pick your brain or talk more to you about coming to Texas and finding some public land and like Audad. There's public land Audad over there, correct? Um, we should be able to find you a place that's public land that has Audad. Cool. Yeah, if I mean, not- I, I would be tickled even just to have a good chance at killing them. Is there mule deer public land? Mule deer? Um, there is in, in the panhandle. Um, I don't know all the regulations on that one. Okay. Um, there is public land, but we also have private land access. You have to understand that despite it being private land, there are a lot of individuals who be like, heck yeah, come hang out with us. I want to talk to talk to you, learn about going out. If you'll take me, if I go out west hunting, you come come hunt with us. You know, there's a lot of give and take here too. Okay, yeah, that's that's something I've been I've been looking at getting into is is doing like um, hunt swaps or something like that. You know, yeah. kind of like if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And and um, I've got some buddies that through podcasting and stuff we're trying to work out details on getting blacktail hunts and elk hunts you know booked out and stuff like that but um so yeah but we'll have to maybe put something together and and see if we can't help each other out or or at least give me a few pointers where to go for public land stuff that that sounds like a plan for me i'll help you as much as i can too awesome awesome all right man well hey i appreciate you coming on and and at the same time thanks for having me on your show (laughs) i appreciate it Uh, thanks for all the help you've given me even getting the podcast going uh the headsets when you start these, you don't have a clue what you're doing and you were very helpful and I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Is it working out for you? All the mics and stuff? Oh my gosh. Did you have you, my last ones, the audio is a million times better since you told me to get those headsets and the amp and mm-hmm. a million times. I've yeah. Heard the f- you're up to like episode 10 now, aren't you? I, yes. And we have one that we're about to learn from uh, Mike and Zach went elk hunting and uh, came home with a bear, but they went <laughs> elk hunting. So, um, <laughs> With Zach and Mike going, there's no telling what's going to be said on there. So Awesome. Yeah, I was listening um, to your podcast, listening to like the first couple episodes, and then I fast-forwarded the last episode. Cause just It's fun to see the progression. You know, like <laughs> every podcast has it, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, like the beginning, there's like mine, just like mine, there's no intro music or anything. And then on the last one I listened to, you had the intro, there's post-production. There's, it's just really cool to see that, you know, a podcast – grow and and, and and increase in the productivity and, and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. So yeah, if you ever need any more help, man, I'm not a guru or anything, but I can definitely point you in the right direction here and there. But I appreciate you. Thank you very much, man. So, all right. Well, it's good talking to you, man. Yeah. Take it easy. All right. See ya. 
All right, guys, that's this episode of the podcast. Be sure to go check out Corbin's podcast, Knock Deep, available pretty much on all platforms, and his archery shop based out of Seminole, Texas, uh, Corbin's Archery. And I'll have a link to both of those in the description box below. And if you can and you want, be sure to go on to the YouTube channel where I do lots of bow reviews, lots of how-tos, tips, tricks for archery, um, a lot of strategies for just getting better and, and, and knowing where your arrow is going to hit before it gets there. And uh, just kind of making sure that all those silly errors are out of the uh, out of, out of of the way before season gets here, before when you're actually shooting on a live animal. Let's just get all those learning curves out of the way. So lots of cool content there. Just type in my name in the YouTube search bar, Garrett Weaver. I'll pull right up. Click the subscribe button along with the bell icon and help that YouTube channel grow. And I appreciate everybody that does that. So outside of that, guys, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.